0: Hebrews chapter 11, we're continuing with our series this morning, The Life of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11, The Life of Faith, we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 this morning. Hebrews 11 verses 11 and 12. Let's read those two verses and then we'll pray and get into the study. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 11, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us. We thank you that in your wisdom, you wrote your word down for us, that we might know you better, that we might be both encouraged and admonished, built up and warned, loved and rebuked through the truth of your word. We thank you that, Father, the word is all about Jesus Christ. And we come here today wanting to be all about Jesus. We say together that as a church, that's our goal, that's our mission, to be all about the person of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would consume and subsume our lives with that reality. That today, God, we'd be less about ourselves and more about Jesus. We need help for this, because as we have so often confessed together, we are overly concerned with ourselves. We've hijacked our own lives. Our lives are supposed to be about you, Christ. About your mission and about your glory. And we've made it about us and our mission and our own glory. And the more we study your word, the more we realize that. And the nearer we draw to you, the more we see the futility of that. And so open up your word to us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. And bring us near by the work of the Holy Spirit. That we might see and realize and repent where is needed. Because we want to be more like Jesus. We want Jesus to be bigger in our lives. And so Holy Spirit, come and speak to us today. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, we ask that you would open their, their heart and their eyes to see, to know, to understand that you are the God who made them and who loves them. And that you want them to know you. For those of us that know you, you get us on mission this morning, Lord. I ask that you'd please anoint me to speak your word, that every word that comes from this mouth would be from your throne, that it would be unfettered by my own opinion and the fallible wisdom of man, but we would just get the pure and unadulterated word of God. We ask it together in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Well, my brothers and sisters, we must realize as we look at verse 11 that in the original Greek there are some ambiguities in the grammar that make it unclear as to who the subject of the sentence is. In other words, we're not sure from the original Greek whether verse 11 is actually about Sarah or if it's about Abraham. It's unclear in the Greek who the subject of the sentence is. Now, It's complicated and we need not trouble ourselves with it here, but we should acknowledge that there are a couple translations available to us in the English language that read differently than the New American Standard Bible that I'm reading from this morning. For example, the NIV has Abraham as the subject of the sentence and not Sarah as the NASB does. The NIV reads in verse 11, by faith Abraham even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, wasn't able to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promises. So again, the problem, and it's not a big problem, but there's just some ambiguity in the Greek grammar in the original. And so some translations vary here. It's not many. Really, the NIV and also the New Century version are the only two versions I found out of the 20 versions I read this week That have Abraham as a subject. Either way, the explicit mention of Sarah here in verse 11 is clearly a commendation of her faith. Either way, both of them needed and had faith with regards to God's promise of an offspring. And either way, the lesson that I want to draw from the text is the same, and it's this that Abraham and Sarah's lives of faith exemplify for us faith that is waiting. You'll remember the rest of the cats in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 so far. Abel exemplified faith that is worshiping. Enoch exemplified faith that is walking. Noah exemplified faith that is working. Abraham was faith that is willing. And Sarah teaches us about faith that is waiting this morning. We understand from the progression of things as ordered by the Holy Spirit here in chapter 11 that worship comes first. But faith that worships will also walk. And faith that walks will also work. And faith that worships, walks, and works is willing. And faith that is willing will sometimes have to wait. And to be quite honest... Abraham and Sarah had a difficult time waiting on God. Now, to be fair, they were going to have to wait 25 years. Very few of us, hopefully, will ever experience that, waiting for 25 years. Most of us were good for about two weeks before we started losing it. Abraham and Sarah, though they didn't really do that great, were called to wait for 25 years. They made, we'll see today, a monumental mistake in their waiting and had a few very revealing and embarrassing moments along the way. But this is true of almost all the people in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're kind of given the highlight of their faith, the highlights of their life of faith. But if we took their whole life, indeed, if we took certain vignettes from their life, they could not only be in the hall of fame, they could have made it to the hall of shame if there were one. You see, all these cats in Hebrews 11 were a lot like you and me. They had highs and they had lows. They experienced ups and downs. They had days where they had strong faith and other times where they really had weak faith and failures of faith. But this morning as we talk about faith that is waiting, we realize this. Nobody likes to wait. Can I get an amen? Amen. Nobody likes to wait. Listen, it happens in your heart the same way it happens in my heart. It was Valentine's Day just yesterday. And some of you, no doubt, if you're foolish enough not to make a reservation on Valentine's Day, you rolled up to a restaurant with your sweetheart and you walked up to the hostess and you heard those words you never want to hear. May I have your name? It'll be an hour wait. Lady, you don't know me. I'm a hungry man. You don't want to see me wait an hour to get my food. And so we go down the street and we find some chintzy place. And may I get your name? It'll be a half hour wait. (laughs) We hate to do that. Cheesecake factory is the worst. They got the stinking beepers. I mean, you know you're in a bad joint when they got the beepers. You roll up and they don't even take your name and they're pulling out from under the counter the beeper. May I have your name? It'll be six to five days, 10 to 11, maybe, I don't know. Five to six, I don't know. They give you the beeper. Well, how far can I go with this beeper? This beeper goes up to six miles. Go take a drive, don't worry about it. We'll beep you. We hate that. I just got finished traveling to London and um, gosh, I was just reminded how traveling requires so much waiting. You know, we were coming back from London, it was a long trip, it never got above freezing the whole time I was over there. While I was there, they had the biggest snowstorm in 18 years that they had had. And uh, you know, the day before I left, I was laying on the beach down here at Jelly Bowl. And then I show up to London, you know, I got my Vans and my normal jeans and my, you know, standard black shirt. I was ready for below freezing, 18 years snow record. And so I was kind of stoked to get out of there for that reason and come back to Southern California, but it takes forever, right? You get to the airport, you roll up to the line and you got to wait in line. You get through line, you get through the check-in, you give them your luggage and then you go to security and you've got to wait in security and security now is insane. You know what I mean? You can't take your water. You got to take your shoes off. You're almost naked by the time you get through there. (laughs) Waiting through multiple lines, they're frisking, they're feeling, they're touching. And you finally get through and then you go to the gate and you have to wait at the gate. And then they start calling you to board. And of course, I was sitting at the back of the plane. I don't know what the gig was with that. And finally, they load you on and you get down the little jetway there and you have to wait on that thing. And in London, I found they don't heat those things. It's below freezing in this stinking tunnel going to the plane and I'm waiting as everyone adjusts their oversized carry-on luggage. What's with carry-ons these days? People carry on like nine bags. People are carrying on families these days. Can I fit it in here? And so you finally get in the plane and you get on the plane, you find you're waiting again to get down the aisle. And then you sit down and you get all your stuff and you get buckled and I'm six foot six so my knees are nailed against the seat in front of me. And I'm waiting, and it seems like the plane is never taking off. (laughs) Hello, welcome to uh, Virgin Atlantic. We are currently 97th for takeoff today, so we'll be underway in just a few hours. And you're waiting, and then you fly forever. Some guy on our flight had a medical emergency. God bless him. I hope he's okay. They didn't tell us. But we had to do an emergency landing in Maine, in Boston. Maine, Massachusetts, Boston, wherever that is. I don't know what state that's in. (laughs) I went to Carpentry High, dude. I don't know. I'm lucky I found London. I had to use my iPhone to find London. And they had to do emergency landing. Of course, that took us off route. And then you get down there, and we're going to be refueling. We'll have to wait. We're two hours on the ground there. Finally, you get back in the air. You land in L.A., and they say, oh, there's some traffic here on the runway. We'll have to wait until we pull up to the jetway. And then you get to the jetway, and you know how they turn off the seatbelt sign, and everybody, it's a simultaneous click, click. <laughs> and everybody stands up and grabs their luggage and then you're just standing there forever holding your nine carry-ons waiting to get off and then you finally get off and you get to customs and you have to wait again in customs and you're waiting forever and I got to the front and I had my little form and I had read the form very carefully and it didn't say that it required blue or black ink I specifically checked whether it said that because all I had with me was a pink pen I don't know why pink pen I had pink pen <laughs> Don't ask me why pink pen. I have pink pen. I fill it out with the pink pen. I get up there. guy goes, you can't have pink pen. <laughs> he sends me to the back of the line with the form. I fill it out. I wait in the line again. We get through customs, and then we get to the baggage claim, and we wait for longer. And then I get out to the curb, and waiting again at the curb. And what I found out is that I hate traveling. <laughs> and the only reason I hate traveling is because of all the waiting. We don't like to wait. Because waiting feels like work. But waiting, when it is on God, does work. Or said differently, there is a work that is accomplished in waiting. What God works in us while we're waiting on Him is he fortifies into us certain things that he wants in our lives. He purges out of us certain things that ought not to be there. He matures us. He tempers or balances us. And that yields in our lives then a greater character, a deeper integrity, a higher level of trust, resolve, and motivation. And all of these qualities are shaped in us by God through the process of waiting on God. And because of this, waiting is an inescapable part of the Christian life. Because there's such a work that is accomplished through waiting on God, it is an inescapable part of the Christian life. Also, it's an inescapable part because God's ways are not our ways. And lo and behold, God's timing is not our timing. Isn't that right? And so we will all find ourselves from time to time waiting on God. Now, there is a right way and a wrong way to wait on God. We look at three points this morning on how to wait on God. We need to be, number one, waiting without being passive Number two, waiting without causing problems. And number three, waiting without missing God's promises. Okay? That's how we wait on God. Number one, waiting without being passive. I want us to see the story that's alluded to in Hebrews 11 as we turn to Genesis 15. Go there, please. Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, we have the promise of a son made to Abram. We'll start reading in verse 1 of Genesis 15. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. That was his servant's child. In other words, he had no male heir, so his servant's child would be the heir. Verse 3. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying... This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then Abram believed in the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So here we see the promise of a son, and indeed many sons, an innumerable amount of offspring, given to Abraham. And it's given to Abraham at a time when he was 75 years old. Okay, he hadn't had any kids yet. And God says, you're not just going to have a son, but your offspring will be as innumerable as the stars in heaven. 75 years old. And by faith, he believed the Lord when he got in the promise. I don't know if there's a lot of 75-year-olds here that are thinking, oh yeah, I'm gonna have a bunch of kids still. (laughs) But Abram believed the Lord by faith even though he was 75. Now, as the story unfolds, and we'll look at it, we find that Abram and Sarah would have to wait 25 years for that promise to ultimately be fulfilled. But remember what they were waiting for was God's promise, what God said he would do to be fulfilled in their lives. All of us have this sense of waiting at one time or another on God for something. But we need to ask ourselves, what are we waiting for? Abram and Sarah were waiting for the explicit promise, the clear word of God. The first thing we need to be sure of is that we are waiting on God on his actual promises. We need to be clear on the object of our faith and we need to be clear on the promise that God has made. In other words, this thing that we claim to be waiting with regards to, looking forward to, is it God's call? Is it God's plan? Is it God's purpose? Is it God's mission? Or is it your own? Because if it's our own, then we can't really say we're waiting on God, though that's common Christianese. That's part of our grammar, we hear it all the time. But wait a minute, if we're going to be biblically correct, waiting on God means that there is some promise, some word concerning His plan, His purpose, His call, and His mission, and not our own. You see, Abraham and Sarah had a clear promise from God. This promise would affect and bless them to be sure. But in the final analysis, it wasn't about them. We need to get this because we always make it about us. We always make waiting on God about us. The promise of the offspring affected them and it would bless them to be sure, but it wasn't about them. It was about God's plan And God's purpose to reveal himself and to bless all the nations through Israel and ultimately through the Messiah. It was about God's mission. It was about God's identity and not their own. We need to remember that in our lives, God is wanting to accomplish his purposes and not necessarily our purposes. We've got to remember this in daily life. What God is wanting to do is accomplish his purposes in and through you and not necessarily those of ourselves. And where a disconnect often takes place is here. Our time scale is too small. Our time scale is too small. We're just kind of really caught up in the here and now. That's really all we can see is what's going to affect me right now. Maybe we're thinking to 70 or 80, maybe. But we're very seldom thinking beyond that. What's going to affect us right now? But you see, God's promises to Abraham and Sarah would take thousands of years to unfold. In the offspring, in the ultimate formation of the nation of Israel, In the Messiah coming from Israel and in the Messiah blessing all the nations and in all the nations being redeemed and in all the nations ultimately being around the throne of God, offering worship to the person of Jesus Christ. This would take thousands of years to accomplish. The disconnect is that our time scale is too small. We're almost hopelessly myopic meaning near sighted, We see everything right here. How does it affect right here? But you see, God is way bigger than that. And God's purposes are bigger than our lifespan, bigger than our life. And God might be working things in and through you today that should he tarry would affect generations. He came to a 75-year-old man and made a promise to him that would affect thousands upon thousands of generations and all of the nations. Our time is too small. We've got to begin to look at things from God's time scale and make sure that we're not missing God's purpose. And not realizing that it's about God's purposes and not our own breeds false expectations. We think it's about us. And so we set up these false expectations and these become very problematic in our emotional security, stability. I have a quote here. It says, much mental suffering is tied to our false expectations we may so link our hopes and joys and future to a new job, to a promotion, to certain kinds of success, to prosperity, that when they fail to materialize, we are utterly crushed. But quiet confidence in God alone breeds stability and delight amid all the changing scenes of life. Now this is especially poignant for you and I Who have been poisoned by false gospel in this nation. The prosperity gospel. That it's all about your health and it's all about your wealth. It's a total egocentric theology and gospel. It's a false theology. It's a false gospel. And it feeds into our fallen selfish nature and our consumerism as Americans. And then we have the audacity as Americans to export this to places like Thailand and Africa, where there's real suffering. But you see, it's endemic within our culture that we think we have certain inalienable rights from God that we deserve something. And in that, we set up false expectations and that is sure to bring disappointment. We've got to ask ourselves in those times of waiting, are we really waiting on God? God? Or is it just some idea that you've proposed to God? Or worse, are you demanding some sort of right from God? Are you insisting on some sense of entitlement before God? I must tell you and I must say to myself repeatedly, we have no rights. You understand that our rights were done away with when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. And when we come to Him, we must surrender. And it's so much silliness for dirt to stand on earth and shake its little fist toward God and say, what about me? And I have rights and it's unfair and I deserve. When in reality, Scripture is very clear, we deserve hell. And it is only by the grace of God that Christ died on the cross for you and I. And by no right of our own, only by the character and the mercy of God, are we given heaven. And are we given any promises at all? But you see, the promises have to do with the person of Jesus Christ and not the person of you. It's about Him and His glory and His mission. And so often waiting is frustrating because we're waiting on our own plans, our own purposes. We need to establish that we're actually waiting on God for his plans and his purposes. And once we have established that, then we need to realize that our faith is to be an active faith. You're waiting on something God wants to do, then you need to be active in your faith. Waiting on God never means paralysis. It's not like waiting in the airport where at best you could read a book or maybe turn on the movie. Waiting on God never means paralysis. When we are waiting on God, we are to be engaged with God. It never means to be doing nothing. We don't just say, okay, well, God, you said you were going to do this, so I'm just going to sit here and wait for you to do it. It's not what it means to wait on God. Our faith is to be active. And we're to wait on God without being passive. We're to be thoroughly engaged. That means that we're to be praying, asking, seeking, knocking as Jesus described. That means that we're to be studying the word of God and seeking the God of the word. That means that we're to be worshiping. And what we'll find when we do these things is Jesus. And all of a sudden when our prayer life increases and our Bible study increases and our worship life increases, we discover that it's all about Jesus in the final analysis anyway. So everything else becomes peripheral and now it gets easier to wait because we've already attained to the goal, which is knowing him. Jesus Christ is the goal. Knowing and loving Him is the goal of our existence. And when He has us in a posture of waiting, and when we refuse to be passive, and we press in through prayer and seeking and asking and knocking and reading and worshiping and waiting and meditating and praising, we find Him. And in that moment, the soul is settled. I mean, Abraham had to wait 25 years. But in the final analysis, the Bible says that Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. Totality of his life is not the fact that he waited, but the fact that he was a friend to the living God. This is what life is about. A friend of mine, one of my best friends in the whole world, who is also a member here at Reality and very involved, he's currently going through some difficult times. You know, the economy as such has hit his family pretty hard. He had a great job. It was a well-paying job, a very well-paying job. He worked from home. He had tons of flexibility, made his own schedule. Uh, It was pretty much a dream scenario. And he recently lost that job. You know, the economy, he didn't do anything wrong. They were just laying people off. And so he got laid off of that job. He also had an investment that he had gone pretty much all in on. And the investment went bad and he lost all that. So now he and his wife and their two kids are looking at losing their home. There's a very real possibility that they might lose their home. Now, I know that there's people who are much worse off in our community and in the world. But for him and his family, this has been a really big deal to simultaneously lose that investment as so many people are doing, to lose their job as so many others are, and possibly be losing their house. And so I sat down with him this week because he's a great friend of mine. I know that he's waiting on God because you see the field that he's in, he's good at. And he's had several jobs in that field and he could have another job immediately. He could call up some old employers and get another job, but God has told him not to. God has told him to wait because there's something new that's going on in his life. Something different that God wants to do. And so he hasn't made that phone call and he's waiting on God. So I sat down with him this week and I said, okay, let's talk about waiting on God. You're going through it. I I mean, I'm going to teach the Bible. but You're going through it. Tell us what it's like for you. And so I asked him, what are you doing while you're waiting on God? And you can listen and judge whether or not you think he's doing well. Now, he started with the negative, as we often do, we're all self deprecating. He started with the negative and he said, Well, one of the things that I'm doing that's really killing me is I'm playing every scenario over and over in my head. What if I hadn't made that investment? What if I had done this differently at work? What if I had set up this differently? What if I did go ahead and call my old employer? What if I did this? What if I made that? What if we went and did this and that and the other? He says over and over all night long, I'm playing the various scenarios through my head. And he says that what this has done in his life has caused a great degree of anxiety, so much so that he's been having physical manifestations of anxiety, getting sick feeling sick, heart feeling strange, all those things. And then he said, but when I get in the place where I experience the peace of God, it takes all that anxiety away and it takes all those thoughts away. And I said, okay, 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 cool. That's good. How how do you get in the place where you're experiencing the peace of God? And he said, I go away and I pray. He said he's been hiking up in the mountains, sitting on a certain rock and praying to the Lord. Praying out loud, praying in the spirit, praying in tongues, praying any way that he knows how to the Lord. He says that it takes him one full hour of doing that before he really feels like he shut out all the noise, all the self, all the thoughts and he's really just being still before God. His testimony is that his level and degree of peace is connected to his prayer life. Philippians chapter 4 says the same thing. Verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. A paraphrase, indeed the New Living Translation says this, Don't worry about anything, pray about everything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Start out by praising God, and then tell God everything that's going on. And then look at the promise in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, as I've been practicing prayer, I've been experiencing peace. My heart, which is full of anxiety, my mind, which is going over and over the scenarios, has been guarded in Christ Jesus. You see, the degree of peace in our life really is tied to our prayer lives. It's not because prayer is psychologically soothing, but it's because we address a prayer-answering God, a personal God a responding God, a sovereign God whom we can trust with the outcomes of life's confusion. That's who God really is. And so I said, okay, tell me more. What else do you do? He said, well, while I'm waiting on God, I've discovered that I have to repeatedly surrender. I said, what do you mean repeatedly? He says, well, I find myself having to surrender the same things over and over. I'll surrender him one time and then here it comes again and I have to surrender it again. And then he said, something else happens. It's progressive surrender. I said, progressive surrender? What is that? He said, well, the more I surrender, the more things I discover I need to surrender. And there's things in my life I didn't even know were a problem. I'm discovering that I need to surrender them. So the more I surrender, the more I discover I need to surrender, the more I surrender and the more I surrender. Progressive surrender. I said, oh, that's good, my brother. That's good. He says he's also been keeping track of what God has been telling him. He's been journaling. God's been speaking to him. The God of the universe has been speaking to him. He's been keeping track of it. You know, God used to speak to me in the middle of the night. He used to wake me up and tell me cool things. And uh, I never used to write it down because it was the middle of the night. You know what I mean? I can't be bothered. I'm in bed. And I had this theology. This was my theology about that. God would wake me up and he'd be speaking to me and show me some cool stuff. And I feel like, wow, that's really going to be applicable to my life and other people's lives. Maybe I should write that down. I thought, well, if it's God, God will remind me. And I go back to bed and I wake up and say, okay, God, what was that again? And I could never get it again. And I was frustrated with the Lord one time. I said, Lord, what's the deal? Remind me of what you told me. And the sovereign God of the universe said to me, "Brett, I am not your secretary. When I speak, you write it down. <laughs> okay, sorry, Lord. So I've started writing things down that God says to me. And so in his life, God's been speaking to him. He's writing those things down. Something else he said he's been doing that's profound and totally right on is he's been paying closer attention to the body of Christ. Closer attention to the body of Christ, to what people in the body of Christ would want to speak into his life by the Spirit of God. And he's paying closer attention to the Word of God. Oh, the one-year Bible reading is a whole new gig for him now. He's paying much closer attention to the Word of God. So he's listening for God's prophetic voice. He's listening to God's corporate voice as God speaks through the corporate body. And he's listening for the voice of God in the written Word. The other thing he says he's doing is saturating himself in the presence of God. Anytime there's worship happening at the church, he's showing up now. Yeah, a fool. Is showing up and blowing up. Every time there's worship going on, he's here on his face. And at his house now, he's worshiping. He's getting alone with God like never before. Just saturating himself in the presence of God. He said that he's being more others focused now. Because in his waiting, he finds this real tendency to get self-centered. And so he's being purposeful about being other focused. He's looking at the word of God and seeing that throughout history, God has been faithful and he's realizing through the story of scripture that God has a purpose that's bigger than his own drama, bigger than his own life, bigger than the realities facing him. And this is bringing to him not anxiety, but security that God is bigger, that God is working a bigger plan. And what he's realizing is this, that God is a God of purpose and that any time spent waiting on God is not wasted on time. Waiting is work, but waiting does work. When we're waiting on God, there's a work that is accomplished in us because he's a purposeful God. And so he's asking the Lord, what would you have me do? What's my next step? He's not going to the right or the left without getting his marching orders from God. And you know what he's heard over and over again? Just wait. Wait a little more. But then he said this. What I'm discovering is Jesus. I'm falling so much more in love with the Lord, experiencing so much of him, that I don't really care so much about the outcome anymore. I'm just finding more of Jesus in my life. And he says that that has involved for him deep emotions. They're not a super emotional guy. He's kind of stoic, really. But for him, it's involved deep emotions, this new discovery of God. So you see, I think my friend is doing it right. He's waiting on God without being passive. And he's discovering what you and I need to discover. And it's this, that God is all about the process. Get that. That's really important for our lives. God is all about the process. We're all about the goal. And because of that, there's a disconnect, Between us and God. God is all in and about the process. We're all about the goal. You realize this in your one-year Bible reading, don't you? I used to hate doing the one-year Bible reading. I refused to do it because I am so goal-oriented. And if I know, okay, I need to read four chapters today, then what do I do? Two chapters into it, I'm like, okay, two chapters down, two chapters to go, getting this baby done right now. And I'm so goal-oriented that I would miss God. Now, as a people, we're like this. We're so goal oriented. We're so conditioned this way in our culture that we miss God in the process. And God is all about the process. And while Abraham and Sarah were waiting 25 years for God to fulfill his word, God was working in them. If God has you waiting, it's because God is working, it's not because he's too busy. It's not a cosmic take a number thing. That's not what it is. And it's not as though God gives us a promise and says, okay, now I gave you my promise. I'll check in with you in 25 years. It's not as though God tucks us in bed at night and goes, oh, I'm so glad I'm done with him for a few hours. Okay, let's take a break from him. It's not who God is. I believe that God, at least with me, God is dealing with me even in my sleep and my thoughts. And my dreams in the subconscious level God is always dealing with his people and God is all about the process you see a common and modern view of God is that he's involved in just the big things the major turning points of history but not necessarily the details of our lives and much of our own theology is that way It's probably not spoken theology. We wouldn't say that because we read differently in the Bible, but it is our practical theology. That's the way that we live. We go to God with the big things. The little things, we're like, no problem, God, I have this. Don't worry about it. I got it. Our practical theology seems to be that God only cares about the big things and not the details, but you see, Jesus argued the opposite. Jesus argued on the Sermon on the Mount From the lesser to the greater. In other words, he said this God cares even about the sparrow that falls from a nest. God clothes the lilies of the field. Now, if God cares about the sparrow and the flower, which are of little significance, cosmically and eternally speaking, how much more, Jesus argued, does he care about you, men and women? Whom he has created in his own image. Jesus had an altogether different theology than our practical theology. He taught us that the Father is infinitely and intimately concerned with our comings and our goings, with the details of our lives. See, a correct view of God is that he is immanent, it means working within. God is in the details. Indeed, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ sustains the world. He is imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Not to be confused with imminent. There's a vowel change there. I-M-M-I-M-E-N-T, which means about to happen. The rapture of the church is imminent. amen? Amen? But God is always imminent, working within, He's in the midst. That's a theistic worldview. That's who God is. He's in the midst of our lives. And in that, God is preparing you and I for his purposes. We must see that throughout history, God has chosen to work through people, not independent of people. Go figure. If I were God, I would have done it differently. I would not have bothered with you and me. But God throughout history has chosen to work through people not independent of people. And if God has you waiting it's because he's working. He's working in you that he might work through you. Before I was in the ministry full time this ministry full time I was working in the family surfboard business. And I was kind of bivocational. I was working in the family surfboard business shaping surfboards and doing other things and then also doing ministry. And there is a period of seven years where I didn't know which one God would ultimately call me into. I knew I couldn't do both for the rest of my life. It was killing me. For a period of seven years, I waited on God knowing that there would ultimately be an either or. I just had that sense. They were both on a trajectory that was gonna be full time, was gonna totally consume my life and the life of my family. Both would not hold out. I knew that God was bringing me to one or the other. But for seven years, I was in the posture of waiting. And so for seven years, I found myself teaching and preaching and shaping and sharing. Teaching and preaching the word of God, shaping surfboards and sharing with my coworkers. What God told me was, you be faithful with what I've given you now. And so when he had me teaching the Bible, my job was to be faithful with it. When he had me shaping surfboards, my job was to be faithful. And in the midst then of that surfboard factory, it was my job to represent Jesus Christ to the non-believers. And it's interesting to me that it took me about seven years to share the gospel with everyone in that factory. Not because there are so many, but because I was so scared. It took me about seven years to share the gospel with everyone there. And then God called me into vocational ministry and had me put the surfboard thing on the altar. But you see, the seven years of waiting was active, not passive. I didn't just sit back, I pressed in. And in that time, God was shaping me. When I thought I was shaping surfboards, God was shaping me. See, when you're shaping surfboards, you're all alone. And I'd shape surfboards for, I don't know, anywhere from three to 10 hours a day, depending on the day. And you're just alone in this little blue room. It gets really weird. And uh, one of the cool things was I would play uh, play sermon tapes all the time. Sermon tapes and worship music. And that was my seminary. That was my school. That was my training. I listened to thousands upon thousands of sermons and Bible teachings in that little 8 by 12 room. And I listened to hours upon hours of worship. And there are times where I'd be in there and I'd shut the door and I'd be in the foam dust on my knees weeping before the Lord for no reason other than he was with me. I found him in that little room. And while I was waiting, God was working. And at the right moment and not a moment before, he called me to that purpose which he had for me. But you see, the protocol is to be active and not passive. Waiting without being passive. Point number two, waiting without causing problems. Go to Genesis 16. Oh, we're going to have to move quick, people. (laughs) Genesis chapter 16. We'll abbreviate it slightly. Look in verses 1 and 2. Speaking of waiting without causing problems, now Sarai... Abraham's wife had borne him no children and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar this is going to get weird in verse 2 so Sarah said to Abraham now behold the Lord has prevented me from bearing children please go into my maid perhaps I shall obtain children through her and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah men never listen to your wife at that moment (laughs) this is the one time where you totally don't listen to your wife Abraham, listened to his wife, had sexual relations with Hagar. And then we read in verse 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abraham a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. At 75, Abraham and Sarah believed God. Abraham was 75, Sarah was 65. But 10 or 11 years later... Abraham's 85 now, Sarah's 75, she's looking at him, she's looking at her, and she thinks maybe God needs a little bit of help here. And so Ishmael is born, and Ishmael becomes the proverbial work of the flesh. A most noteworthy instance in the Bible of God's people taking God's promises into their own hands. Maybe God needs a little bit of help here. We'll just grab the reins here and see what we can do. We'll just get it done. And Ishmael, in Abraham's life, and in the life of his offspring for generations to come, caused a lot of problems. We need to learn to wait without causing problems. And what this act of, of taking the situation into their own hands really was, was a lack of trust. It was a lack of faith. It said, I'm not sure that God is going to come through anymore, so we better kind of help him and come through for ourselves. And the reason that we have a propensity to do this is that we are very into instant gratification and immediate satisfaction, aren't we? We are all about it. Nobody likes to wait. We like instant gratification and immediate satisfaction. Our kids are like this from the earliest age. I've got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. Do they not pester you all the time? Daddy, now. Daddy, when. Daddy, now. Daddy, when. Daddy, now. non-stop, incessant pestering from these little selfish beings. (laughs) There's no sense of being able or the worth of waiting. And I think that we look that way in God's eyes so many times. Adults saying, Daddy, when. Daddy now. Daddy when. Daddy now. And when it doesn't happen now, by golly, we're going to make it happen. And in that, we make messes. And Ishmael was a mess. In waiting on God, be careful not to birth an Ishmael. A work of the flesh. Don't take it into your own hands. Let God finish the work that he's begun in you. And so I continued to ask my friend. I said, What's so hard about waiting on God? And immediately he said, surrender. Surrender is really hard. I've got to surrender my desires, my wisdom. I've got to trust the Lord with everything. I have to trust that the Lord is smarter than me. Oh, that's a big one. I've got to surrender the desire to be comfortable. That's a big one for us, isn't it? He's got to surrender the desire to be comfortable. He says, I have to surrender this desire to know the plan. I know God's going to get me to point B, but I want to know what's between point A and point B. He says, I've got to surrender that continually. And he said, the hardest thing is I've got to surrender to God my desire to be provider for my family. I'm not providing for my wife or for my two kids anymore. I'm having to trust God to do that. That can be hard on a man. He said that it's relationally difficult because we don't have a society nor really a Christian culture that values waiting. We value getting her done, cowboy. That's what we value. And so he said it's been relationally difficult because people are looking at him saying, What are you doing? Do something, is the mantra. And so he says he feels judged. What he's doing doesn't make sense to a lot of people, it's going against common sense. And he says that not only does he feel judged, but he struggles with doubt. The uncertainty of what's going to happen. Whether or not things are really going to turn out good. And all these trust issues emerge in his heart. And the hardest thing he said is this I feel like I could fix the problem. I mean, I really could. I could make a few phone calls and I could fix this problem. But God isn't letting me. And I said, Good job, brother. Good job obeying God and not birthing an Ishmael. It's almost always true that we can fix a problem. Not always in life, but many times that we could fix a problem ourselves. But that would be birthing an Ishmael. We need to learn to wait without causing problems. And the works of the flesh always cause problems. And finally, we need to be waiting without missing God's promises. Look in chapter 18 of Genesis. Waiting without missing God's promises. CHAPTER eighteen, starting in verse eleven. Genesis eighteen, eleven. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why'd your woman laugh? Saying, Shall indeed Well, you really said Sarah. Why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Why did she say that? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And God said, no, you did laugh. Oh. See, God had made a promise. And Sarah was in real danger of missing it. And God corrected her here. This was an embarrassing moment. She was laughing at the promise of God. And then we see the fulfillment of it in chapter 21 of Genesis. Starting in verse 1 Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 25 years later. Abraham is 100. His wife is 90. It's interesting that God made absolutely sure that they could not before he did. God didn't want them to miss his promises. We need to learn to wait without missing God's promises. They knew that it was humanly impossible. But it says in Hebrews eleven twelve that Sarah considered him who promised faithful. There's the issue. Do you trust God or not? She considered God faithful. She knew that humanly speaking it was impossible, but she considered God faithful. She chose to believe. Now, when we choose to have faith, it doesn't mean that we just ignore the facts. So that's a popular misconception. Faith and facts are not mutually exclusive. Meaning, They can exist side by side. They can occur at the same time. It's not a logical impossibility for both to be happening, for both to be true. Faith and facts. You see, faith without reason is called fideism. Faith without reason. Fideism. It's the idea that knowledge depends solely on faith or revelation. It's faith without any reason, without any observation. But reason without faith is called rationalism. It's a belief that opinions and actions should be based purely on reason and knowledge and not any religious belief or revelation. It's reason without faith. But faith doesn't mean that we throw away reason, and reason doesn't demand that we throw away faith. The biblical faith that we see is a composite of the two. Abraham and Sarah did not take an unreasonable leap of faith. R. Kent Hughes says they weighed the human impossibility of becoming parents against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word and decided that since God is God, nothing is impossible. They believed when God said in Genesis 18, is anything too difficult for the Lord? They didn't know how God would do it, but they believed that God would do it. We're not necessarily to engage in faith without reason, fideism, or reason without faith, rationalism. Again, R. Kent Hughes explains. He says this. We are to rationally assess all of life. We are to live reasonably. When we are aware that God's word says thus and so, we are to rationally assess it. Does God's word actually say that? Or is it man's fallible interpretation? And if God's word does indeed say it, then we must be supremely rational, rational weighing the human impossibility against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word and we must believe. In other words, what is most rational is to take God at his word. It is more reasonable than circumstances. It is more reasonable than empirical data. It does not lay reason aside. The most reasonable thing is to trust the God of the Bible. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord and my soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. See, it all depends on what you see as reasonable, as rational. And so what we need to do is count on the promises of God. When you're waiting on God, remember Romans eight twenty eight. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, God's going to work it for good in your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation or trial has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not let you be tested beyond that which you're able to bear. But with that temptation will provide the way out. 1 Peter 5 7, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Put reasonable weight on Isaiah 40. Starting in verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though even youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's a promise. You see, when you're waiting on God, God is working. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? He told Sarah that at the appointed time, he would come. See, the problem is just a timetable. God's ways are not our ways, and so God's timing is not always our timing. And so we find ourselves waiting on the Lord, but you need to know that God is never late. We often think God is late. God, you really missed that one. You really blew that gig, God. Where were you when that went down? God is never late. Martha and Mary thought Jesus was late when he didn't come to town when Lazarus was dead. Why? They wanted Jesus to come and to heal Lazarus. Jesus wanted to come and resurrect Lazarus. You see, so many of us go through life just saying, oh, Jesus heal this. But he is the Lord of life. He wants to resurrect this thing. He wants to go beyond healing. He brings newness of life. So we find ourselves in the precarious instance of underestimating God who is exceedingly, abundantly able to do anything that we could ask, think, or imagine. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So I asked my friend, what's the hardest thing about waiting on God? And then I asked him, what's the best thing? He said, the best thing is the nearness of God. God seems closer to me now than he's ever seemed to me before. See, when we're waiting, right? When we're waiting without being passive, waiting without causing problems, waiting without missing God's promises, we're going to discover more of God. And we're going to experience a preparation of his work in us for the purposes of him. And that changes our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are a life changer. That you do resurrect dead things. That you bring newness. That you're able to do exceeding abundantly. And Lord, you know our individual lives right now. I simply ask that by your spirit you would come and minister. You minister strength. Lord, indeed, there are a lot of us who need healing in a lot of different ways. Many of us don't even realize the degree of our brokenness. Holy Spirit, come and shine the light of God abroad in our hearts. Search us, Lord, and see if there be any wayward thing in us. Find us out this morning, Lord. Lord, that you might bring us into newness, that we would repent of those works of the flesh, those dead things, that we would cling to the promises of God and experience the power of God for the glory of God. Holy Spirit, work in our lives. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the comforter. Come and comfort your people. Thank you that you come alongside when we're weak and weary. Teach us to wait on you and gain new strength. Give us wings like eagles, Lord, to soar beyond our own purposes and for yours, Lord. Prayer team is up here. Some on your right, over on the ramp, some on your left. Get prayer if you need it. Communion is here as well.